Hello, and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal. Thanks so much for joining me. Today, I'll be speaking with Lacey Liebeck, who is the vineyard manager for Sagemore Vineyards, some of the finest vineyards in the state of Washington, about the unique opportunities and challenges of growing grapes right here in Washington State. But first, a thought. One of the things I've learned over the past few years is just how vital work in the vineyard is. It's easy as a sommelier to think of wine as something that just comes into your restaurant in a bottle and that your principal job is to figure out how it fits into someone's dining experience. Yet wine is first and foremost an agricultural product, and the growing of grapes is, of course, the most pivotal part of wine production. Now, in some parts of the world, grape growing and winemaking are almost one and the same. The vineyards are owned by the same people who make the wine, and they're something of a closed loop. Yet in many other parts of the world, wineries purchase some or all of their fruit. This is a particularly common model here in the United States, where a winemaker in, say, Wisconsin can buy grapes from California and thus make a Napa Valley Cabernet in Sheboygan. The challenge of running a vineyard is that each winemaker might want slightly different growing conditions than the next, more or less yield, larger or smaller clusters, more or less ripeness, and so on. It takes a skilled and dedicated vineyard team to ensure that each block, which can sometimes just be a row or two of grapes, gets the correct treatment and proper amount of care, while also using their own experience and expertise to step in when challenging situations arise. That's why I think it's important for those of us buying American wine to keep an eye out for single vineyard designations on the wines we like. More than just a tool for driving up the price, those labels are a way to understand who's actually growing the grapes. If you're anything like me, you'll find that certain vineyards tend to produce wines you love year after year, and the Sagemore Vineyards are definitely ones that I look to annually. Joining me today on Disgorged is Lacey Liebeck. She's a vineyard manager for Sagemore Vineyards, which has a total of five different vineyard sites in Washington. Those would be Sagemore, Gamash, Winebow, Bacchus, and Dionysus. Lacey, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Zach. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. A uh, little bit warmer on this side of the mountains than uh, your side, but not a whole lot. So uh, what's, uh, what's this time of uh, year like in the vineyard? I, I imagine not a ton of activity. No, you know, it's nice and quiet. Uh, we have a little bit of snow on the ground, so... Most of our employees are either home with their families or uh, travel back to Mexico this time of year. Um, you see a lot of little footprints and life in the vineyard still, but the vines are dormant and uh, we're hoping that we'll get some nice cold winter temperatures, uh, nothing too cold to hurt buds and um, be able to start planning for next year. Excellent. So, um, as I mentioned in the intro, um, you know, there's five different vineyard sites that comprise uh, the sort of Sagemore Vineyards properties. Uh, can you describe a little bit where in the state of Washington they are um, and, and how close they are to one another? Definitely. We are located in southeast Washington. Um, the first property that the company purchased was Sagemore, and it is about 15 miles north of Pasco um, in the Tri-Cities area. So it is Columbia Valley AVA. Uh, we overlook the Columbia River here on the White Bluffs. And uh, next purchase was Bacchus and Dionysus, um, a par partnership also created in the 70s. Bacchus and Dionysus are about three miles up the river from Sagemore. Um, and it's a beautiful site, 350 acres. Uh, Bacchus and Dionysus are sister vineyards side by side, but 
grow kind of two different styles of wine grapes. Um, traveling north again, about 15 minutes north of that would be uh, Gamache Vineyard, which is located outside of Basin City. Uh, it is also uh, set back a ways from the river, a couple miles off the river, but we do have um, some nice effect um, moderating temperatures. Then uh, Weinbau Vineyard is uh, on the Walloop Slope AVA. So it is uh, about an hour north of Pasco. Um, it is on a nice gravel bar that was created during the Missoula floods um, just uh, further north on the Columbia River. Awesome. So um, as you mentioned, obviously five five different vineyard sites. Uh, within those vineyard sites, I think you grow 18 different varietals. Obviously, you've got... Um, you know, dozens upon dozens of uh, winery clients. How hard is it just to keep everything straight? Uh, you know, what's where, who wants what, how to how to handle each individual, not even each individual vineyard or even each individual varietal, but within that you've got obviously different specifications from different wineries. Uh, how do, is it each one giant spreadsheet or what? <laughs> I have a lot of spreadsheets. Uh, I also have an awesome IT team uh, in Natchez through... Um, our parent company, which is awesome. They help me in building kind of the framework for all of this data collection. Because like you said, we're not necessarily just growing, um, you know, we grow a lot of Cabernet, but that Cabernet could be grown differently depending on its vineyard site, its soil type, uh, the trellising method that we use. And then also in uh, the wine winemaker requests, we work very hand-in-hand -hand modifying our viticulture plan to meet the end results that the winemaker is trying to look for. Um, I'll work with a winemaker who's looking for a really soft Cabernet, and they really like something that's elegant. And, um, you know, Gamache Vineyard is a location that is just perfect. It won't be high alcohol. It'll have some very nice violet, crushed rose petal, delicate flavors, whereas... Um, same similar plantings of Cabernet up at uh, Weinbau will have huge tannin and make these big, large, you know, masculine wines that you need to, you know, have a steak dinner and mushrooms with because they're just these large, beautiful tannic wines. Um, and so we're just collecting a lot of data, uh, really kind of having the winemakers meet with our crew and spread the importance of why our work is adjusted um, over different clients. So it's a lot of kind of just communication and working together. Well, and that data collection is something that fascinates me because I think it's something that is um, obviously done throughout vineyards, but you guys make your all the data you collect public. If you go to the Sagemore Vineyards website, you can go look at um, you know any data you want from, I think going back um, probably 15 or so years um, to pretty much, I, I, I've only sort of looked at it um, in passing, but, but you know that data collection I think is, is a part of modern winemaking that people don't really appreciate, which is, is the, the extent to which, um, when you're managing, you know, lots of vineyards, lots of, uh, different varietals, you know, you really have to have that data on hand so that you can pass it off to your, uh, to the team you're working with, to the wineries you're working with. Um, and, and then also because, you know, I think especially in a state like Washington, where the winery itself um, that's buying grapes from you or that where you're farming for them can be pretty removed from uh, the vineyard sites. You know, they have to be able to access that info. So how do you how do you go about kind of collecting some of that data and, and making it um, accessible to to winemakers? 
definitely. You know, we are collecting a lot of data and getting this information out in front of winemakers really allows them to just make informed decisions and be able to really trust us that we are um, executing in a timely manner. And, you know, winemakers really, um, you know, their first job foremost is crafting these beautiful wines, but any time that I can help them by crafting, you know, beautiful balanced grapes in the vineyard so then they can spend their time selling their wine, um, so then they need to buy more grapes, <laughs> um, that is just a win for us. So we do our maturity samples like you were talking about uh, close to harvest. And like you mentioned, I believe I work with maybe six wineries um, in the Tri-Cities area. So within kind of a 45 minute drive or so out of the 108 total wineries we work with. So it's not easy for a lot of our winemakers to just hop in the car and come and check on their grapes. Um, we're doing maturity sampling so they can see the chemistry of the grapes. Uh, they can get an idea of what the ripeness is like. And then we're also you know, publishing newsletters. And I like to be in contact every two to three weeks during the growing season with our winemakers. Just kind of sharing pictures, giving a vintage update. Um, so much of the quality of the grapes happens in um, very small time windows that after bloom for the grape vines, um, after braison, which is the color change, you can really make a lot of informed observations that will assist winemakers when they are in their harvest planning and in the thick of it. Absolutely. And I, I would imagine, too, that like, you know, we we think about those numbers and, and that sort of the sort of measurements coming in handy, mostly uh, when it's like, hey, when do we pick? And obviously, that's the single most critical decision. But, you know, you're also, I think, providing a lot of information that helps, you know, you and the winemakers kind of come together on a plan for like canopy management, green harvesting, if they want to do that, you know, those sorts of things. So it really isn't just a it's not just a matter of measuring. I think it's not just a matter, matter of measuring, you know, in a period of time as you approach harvest, but it's really, you know, measuring the vineyard um, and what's going on probably almost year round, maybe not so much in the winter, but, but, you know, everything from bud break to, to harvest is, I think, you know, you, you write, you're, you're pulling data on all of that. Correct. Yeah. And gosh, it's a lot of information. Um, we pull a lot of data per block. We're looking at um, once we make it through these cold win, uh, winter periods, we will start, uh, analyzing the bud health out there. So we will go and cut open uh, the grape buds, which those clusters and shoots grow from, to see if anything did have winter injury. Uh, you know, it is a living organism, so we're looking to see, um, you know, it's like counting your chickens before you hatch. We can kind of take a sample in the field, cut, cut them open, see um, what's viable and what maybe didn't make it through the winter. And then we're using that to make adjustments on our pruning. So each one bud will give you about one and a half clusters. And if you think one and a half clusters is a quarter of a pound, you can start building your crop um, crop load and talking with winemakers about how many tons per acre they're looking to target. Um, tons per acre is kind of the big conversation with winemakers. It's really um, can be a house style on what their number they think best holds a balanced crop would be. 
Um, and then we're collecting data to be sure that we are growing a balanced crop. So um, what are those cluster weights? They do change every year. So we go out um, at a point where the clusters are about half the weight that they would be at the time of harvest. And we are just harvesting um, whole vines. We'll harvest about four vines per 10 acres and just weigh that amount of clusters that are on the vine. And then we know at that kind of phenological point, so that growth point for the grapes, um, the cluster weight's about half, so you can project what your final cluster weight would be and your final, final vine weight, which then turns into how many tons per acre you're able to produce. Um, and if a winemaker has one acre and they know that they're going to be getting 3.3 tons, then they can start to use that to figure out which tanks they're going to need to ferment in um, and start the planning process. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, that sort of uh, almost like uh, long-term you know, planning in, in a sort of multidimensional space is I think one of the things that people don't don't totally appreciate about the challenge of, of growing grapes and making wine is you, know, you really have to um, be able to project out into the future what you're going to have. And obviously, you know, nature has its way of messing with anyone's projections. Um, although, you know, fortunate, I think in Washington, it's a little more consistent um, year to year. You know, it can be pretty, you know, pr I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you can generally be pretty confident that if you get through kind of the early part of the, of the spring intact, that there's not gonna there's not likely to be a whole lot of weather events that are going to really dramatically affect um, yield and and uh, crop health. I mean, it, right? That's that's more or less true. More or less true. Yeah, a lot of California they are more coastal and even Oregon they're working with the element of fog and cloud cover, where we have this gift of 300 plus days of sunshine um, out in the Tri Cities. It's it's hard to find a day when you're not getting um, ample sunlight into the canopy. And gosh, you know, those that sun penetration is what uh, can create healthy buds um, because your crop for the next year is actually being created inside the bud um, the year before. So well, that's interesting. So, have, so there's a, there's a multi-year kind of process. Yeah, so um, during the summer of 2016, last summer was when we were developing the buds and the fruit um, primordia, you know, inside of the um, cell says they're kind of dividing, deciding how many clusters are going to be possible per shoot. I want to I want to step back for a moment and talk a little bit about your your own personal experience, um, which is, you know, my understanding, you know, you kind of uh, grew up around farming and and we're studying sort of agriculture more broadly. And it's my sense that that uh, growing vinifera grapes is in a lot of ways very, very different than almost any other kind of farming. I mean, for the most part, you're really not looking to bolster yield. You're not looking for, um, you know, to, to kind of add nutrient to provide the most uh, fertility in the soil or the most water or whatever for the vines that really, you know, wine grapes are about really making those uh, vines work as hard as they can without overstressing them. So is there something about that element of, of viticulture as opposed to other kinds of agriculture that particularly appealed to you? I love it. Um, I think it's huge to be so face forward with your client who is purchasing and consuming the good that you're producing. 
in agriculture, so often you are many steps in the supply chain removed from the end customer where I can go to Bookwalter or Barnard Griffin here in town and see people consuming the product made from what I'm producing. And that is what I love. And then being able to work with these winemakers who are so passionate and they're truly entrepreneurs. You know, this is oftentimes it's their hard earned money and it's their vision that they're executing and getting to be a part of, um, really living someone's dream. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, uh, you can kind of catch a, you know, a certain type of euphoria when you're working these long days, but everyone is so excited. And so, um, you know, just feels like they're getting to live their passion. Yeah. So, so sort of speaking of that in a, in an oblique way, I, I sort of imagine in my head that, um, when you are, uh, as a, when you're a vineyard manager or vineyard management company and you have grapes available or, or a block available, is it, is finding a, the winery, um, the, the winery you're going to work with on that a little bit like dating? Like, do you, is it like, uh, you know, so what are you into? Like, do you, is, or is it, or is that a little too, uh, is that a little too abstract a thought? Like, how does it go? How do oh, you no. just go about finding it's, new new winery partners? It's definitely it's a combination between kind of dating and almost like um, following from afar. <laughs> Lots of different wineries. So I get to um, work with Kent Walliser, our director of vineyard operations, and it's pretty amazing what he's gotten to execute with Sagemore since coming on to the, with the company in two thousand two. Um, in 2002, Sagemore had less than, I would say, um, you know, less than 20 wineries purchasing fruit. Uh, majority of fruit all went to one winery. And Kent really started developing this relationship with winemakers and um, kind of the capacity and willingness to work together to not just grow grapes, but make it a collaborative process. Um, and so now we're getting to go out and, you know, sometimes winemakers will be in a block for a couple of years receiving that fruit and they just don't love it. They don't fall in love with that fruit. It either doesn't hit their wine style. It's a little bit too finicky in the cellar. It gets ripe and harvest at the same time as another block of Cabernet in a different place and doesn't work with their cellar, you know, um, processing. There's lots of different reasons why a winery will dump you. Um, we always say that we'll never dump a winery, uh, but we've gotten dumped a couple times. Um, but it's just identifying what is that fruit and whose program within Washington and Oregon, uh, and even broader, whose program within Washington and Oregon would really accentuate and highlight, um, the uniqueness of that block. So there's some individuals who have had Cabernet up at Weinbau, you know, planted in um, the early 80s, just delicious stuff that some winemakers, you know, would not give up. <laughs> um, they are in love with it. And some winemakers just are like, I don't know what, you know, what winemaker X sees in this. I just can't make it work. And then uh, we call up the other winemaker and they're happy to take more. And we find a block here at Dionysus Cabernet that's a little softer, a little smoother tannins, more fruit forward profile. And it works for their program and they fall in love with it. So it's really 
And then there's the complicated factor of not only in the block, but what part of the block, what row. We've got these blocks that can have different soils um, on the east side than the west side. So it may be also moving someone up or down the hill. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting. It was interesting visiting uh, Bacchus and Dionysus this uh, this past summer, and 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 talking to Kent a little bit, and, and coming to understand that a lot of what was planted initially in those vineyards uh, was not really planted with a whole lot of attention paid to the the underlying soil um, that sort of blocks. If it was if you were to relay out that vineyard now, there'd probably be a little bit different um, distribution of varietals because of the soil structure and it's a little bit laid out more by um, by slope and by exposure, which makes a lot of sense, but obviously soil type can be a huge thing with varietals as well. And also um, that there's definitely, at least in those two vineyards in Bacchus and Dionysus, there's a decent amount of uh, disease, um, leaf roll, I think mostly, um, in some of the older blocks. So like those to me strike me as like places where like if you find the right winemaker that appreciates sort of the kind of fruit you get off of those vines, they can be really, really um, on board with it. Obviously, it's going to be less yield. Like how do you manage disease and, and, and that sort of like good, bad side of it? Definitely, definitely. Well, you know, there's some things you just have um, when you kind of have an old vineyard. So you're kind of stuck with your plant density, how far spaced apart the plants are. Um, You can kind of modify your trellis, but again, it's kind of what you have. Um, And like you said, with leaf roll, it's a disease that now uh, we are, as an industry in Washington state, really pushing clean, certified clean plant material. Uh, when planting new vines and we do that in our new blocks we are kind of creating buffer rows and really trying to keep our plant material clean Um, but in the 70s and 80s when those blocks were being planted there was not clean material um, available you know people just assumed that these lovely red leaves in the fall were just uh, you know the vineyard in the fall just a beautiful kind of nice look. And it wasn't until later that people uh, were able to identify and research these diseases and find that, yeah, it does, you know, hit your yield um, 15 to 20%. A lot of that yield reduction, though, is in smaller berries and looser set clusters. So um, there can be some perceived benefits to that fruit. You're not necessarily getting to your lower crop level in a negative manner. Um, However, I would never say that uh, it's because of leaf roll that those vines produce award-winning wines. Um, But it is definitely a factor that adds to the complexity. Um, Leaf roll kind of delays the amount of sugar that the vines are able to to, uh, accumulate. So you do get more phenolic ripeness, so those ripe fruit flavors in the berries before the sugar um, accumulates. So you can have really nice, ripe, beautiful wines, but only have like 13.5% alcohol, since alcohol and sugar are directly correlated. Um, Where in some places, especially with new plantings, um, this year I had a block that was planted in 2013, 100% disease-free material. We are currently, you know, removing anything with disease as we see it. And it was uh, ripe by bricks at the beginning of September last year. 
um, I mean, it had 26 to 27 bricks um, before it had kind of that fruit flavor accumulation. So we got the sugar, but then the winemaker was waiting on the flavor development. Yeah. So you mentioned the term phenolic ripeness, which to me is one of those great, like, it's a wine term that I think a lot of people don't really understand, and I'm not even sure I fully understand it. Is that is that degree of phenolic ripeness, uh, is that a thing that you can physically measure, or is it more like, the, is it more by taste, is it more by experience? Like, like what does phenolic ripeness mean in a grape uh, from maybe a technical standpoint? Definitely. So for me, phenolic ripeness is um, tasted in the vineyard and a huge amount of it is uh, through kind of that tasting how the flavors change over time. Um, it's amazing getting to work with winemakers. Like when I really learned this was with John Abbott, um, who now has, he was with Abeja Winery for years, but now has uh, Devona. And I was walking through a block um, 16A at Dionysus Cabernet. And we were talking about the ripeness and phenolics are just the chemistry term for the flavor compounds. So we were talking about phenolic ripeness and how it was tasting very mm, cranberry with like a zingy acidity. And uh, you could think about how this flavor compound, the phenolic compound, as it changed and developed was going to take that cranberry flavor um, and over time, it just kind of rounds out to this raspberry pomegranate. The acidity is not so piercing. Um, and then there's this softness, and you could just kind of get to taste and watch as these flavors developed. And some winemakers love a little bit of um, acidity and some of that cranberry kind of red overtone. If they're, you know, working with a wine that is... Um, going to be blended with fruit from the Wallach Slope or from Red Mountain, it may, you know, be seen as a benefit where, um, you know, John's made a reserve Cabernet that is predominantly from Bacchus and Dionysus um, in perfect years. And so he's not looking for a component to a blend. He's looking for um, the whole component to be ripe, I guess. Well, that makes sense, and obviously the 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 decisions that the winemakers are making um, regarding you know whether they're going to do a you know make make the the wine from an individual vineyard site on its own, or if they're going to blend it in, and especially in Washington with a lot of different kinds of uh, vineyard sites, that that makes a huge difference. Um, but yeah, phenolics are to me just like this fascinating concept because it is really it's a thing that is when you taste a lot of wine, you can it's very I'd say easy. It just becomes more and more. Um, possible to understand it but i do appreciate that there's an element of like even from um very knowledgeable experienced growers and things like that there's this element more of like it, it remain it retains a sort of like a little bit mystical quality of like we know it when we taste it as opposed to like bricks where you you know it's a it's a, just a scientific measure you're just you're 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 literally just counting the amount of sugar in the grapes or you know uh ta or anything like that where it's where it's more um it's more directly scientific. I, I like the the blend of science and uh, you know experience that that comes from trying to understand phenolic ripeness. Definitely, and it is um, one of the fun and challenging parts of my job. Is some winemakers will see those numbers on the um, on our website on the computer and see that the 
acid bricks TA are in kind of the harvest window. And then we'll call me and ask kind of what flavors am I tasting? Is it ready for them to get out into the vineyard yet? Or should I give them some time? Um, and just kind of describing those flavors, sommeliers kind of get to do it all the time. But from a farming background, kind of describing the cherry going from a Bing cherry to cola cherry um, to candied cherry is definitely unique and it's a lot of fun. Um, And then it's fun to get to watch. And I've got some winemakers who are in the same block who pick three weeks apart just based on house style. So getting to taste where those grapes go and then turning around and in the winter tasting those wines yeah, it gives you probably like a, a different, not a different uh, understanding, but it, but it, it, that's one of the things that's probably really nice about working with a lot of different wineries is you can see very similar, you know, very, very, you know, nearby blocks, you know, adjacent rows sometimes and see that are, that you said are picked differently or to some extent are maybe even farmed differently. And to really then I'm sure you get to try a lot of the resulting wines. That's really that's cool. It's a that's a neat uh, opportunity, I bet. Oh, yeah. Kent and I try to hit, you know, at least 25% of our clients in the winter. Um, Visiting on viticultural practices, any kind of leafing or exposure uh, goals, anything that we, you know, missed or our timing was off. Um, Timing in the vineyards is huge. If you are um, two weeks late in doing a function like leaf removal, or uh, green cluster thinning, not only is it uh, you're missing time to accumulate that light, um, but you know, I've got over a hundred different winemakers to all keep happy and make sure their food <laughs> is um, handled at the appropriate time. When you get behind, it's, uh, um, I don't like unhappy winemakers. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine not. They're, they tend They tend to to think that, uh, and maybe understandably so, that that no matter what, there's, their grapes are the most important, um, as they probably should. Um, I, anyhow, I want to actually ask you about a couple of the less common uh, varietals you grow, because they're varietals I think are particularly exciting in Washington State right now, uh, even though they're relatively uh, low quantities of them being grown. So maybe um, I'll, I've got three different ones that I wanted to chat about briefly, and, and you can talk a little bit about maybe uh, what growing those grapes is like and and how you um, how you handle them broadly obviously understanding that different uh, the different wineries that you uh, work with may have different uh, preferences so I'll start with the white grape uh, Roussan, which is something that I think is really interesting and exciting in Washington uh, what's what's growing Roussan like um, as a varietal and and where do you guys have that planted mm-hmm so we have um, four rows of Roussan, about an acre here at Sagemore And then we've got a little bit more quantity up at our Gamache Vineyard. And Roussan is really interesting because uh, depending on the cluster's exposure to the sun, you get this very gold and green. During harvest, even, the kind of interior, more clusters retain this green color on the skin where... um, Clusters that are more exposed have this nice golden, um, almost a tan on the side that hits the sun. And so a lot of the canopy management and the work that we're doing for Roussan is balancing that light penetration. Um, While the green and the gold can um, 
help to bring complexity into the wine. Um, it also kind of just creates another factor that the winemakers are dealing with. And so we're looking to, it can also be a larger cluster um, for size. And so irrigating to get enough canopy to provide shade during our high heat um, days, but also enough leaf removal and uh, stopping the canopy growth at a time when um, you can get nice sunlight in there. Mm-hmm. And and as far as like typical, uh, like ripening curve and all that, where does Roussan fall among kind of tip your other more, sort of more common white varietals? Is it early, late, in the middle? Uh, I believe Roussan is uh, a later season variety, okay. uh, mid to late. Um, and it's just, you know, it has some nice acidity that you've got to work through. And as it ripens, that acidity kind of evens out and you get these delicious kind of poached pear um, flavors in the in the vineyard. Absolutely. Um, and then sort of moving over to red, um, I'm, I'm really excited by um, Mervedra. Uh, here in Washington, again, another um, sort of, I think, up-and-coming varietal, um, although still very uh, limited plantings throughout the state. I think, actually, I know a lot of winemakers who wish there was more of it that they could work with. Uh, so, again, where, where do you have that? And, and you know, from a sommelier perspective, I, I kind of often equate Mavedra with Syrah um, as far as its sort of um, broad flavor profile. And, obviously, they're often grown and blended together in their own. Um, is it anything – is growing Mavedra anything like growing Syrah, or is that just a, a – is that not true in the vineyard? Yeah, we've got some Movedre up at our Winebow Vineyard, um, and it's fun. A lot of people are. We have some clients who are doing a standalone Movedre from that block, and some that are looking for more of a, a GSM blend. Um, in the vineyard, Syrah and uh, Syrah is so finicky and unique. Um, almost nothing is like Syrah for me, growing wise. Um, but Movedra does have its its own challenges. Um, one thing that I always notice about Movedra is it's got a really uh, red burgundy color during the spring when those shoots are growing. So you always know when you've hit the Movedra block. Um, and when it's growing, you're, again, protecting these clusters from the sun. But it does have a very large cluster with big berries. And so... A lot of managing Movedra is watching the water. So we're irrigating to get um, our canopy to about four, four and a half feet in length, um, depending on the season. And then we're really slowing down our water. It's, you know, the miracle of drip irrigation. We've got total control with less than seven inches of rainfall here in Washington a year. Um, We've got the ability to just really slow down the water, stop the plant growth, and hopefully the vine response is to then um, keep those berries small. Um, If you lose control of that berry size, it will um, rot from the inside out. So you'll see these just beautiful clusters hanging and then you'll either flick them with your hand or break them open and stick your nose in it and a bunch of fruit flies will come out and they'll be bad. Um, Yeah, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound tasty. Yeah, it'll, It'll make um, some lovely vinegar, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Something, yeah. Yeah. um, So a lot of when we're going through and harvesting that, um, if we're in a year like 2016 was for us, 
where we have um, showers and rainstorms coming through harvest. We're spending a lot of time monitoring that block, being sure that if we do see or detect any of that kind of fruit, I call it going over the edge. It just starts to rot and go bad. It's a, it's a fresh crop. So there is that factor when you are at harvest, if you don't pick it soon enough, eventually it starts to decay. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're out there smelling, sticking our nose in clusters, not just tasting for flavors, but being sure that we don't, uh, have, have a disease like Botrytis take over because once it establishes itself, um, besides removing those clusters and throwing them to the ground so that winemakers do not receive them, um, there's really nothing you can do. It, yeah. It'll be a factor that reduces crop load if, if the right factors are there. And then uh, one other one other varietal that uh, you have a little bit more of than the previous two, but is still, I think, um, on the on the come up here in Washington is Cabernet Franc. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I love about Franc is that you get this really beautiful um, aromatic expression. It's got, you know, a lot of the structure of Cabernet Sauvignon, but to me is a little bit more uh, elegant, I guess is maybe one way to put it. Um, so to maybe what what's, how is growing Cabernet Franc um, different from growing Cabernet Sauvignon? And, and what do you, what, what are some things that you um, appreciate about it? If there are any, if you hate Cabernet Franc, you can feel free to say so. Oh, no. Um, I will say Movedra is a pain because you do have to smell for that rot. And yeah. that is not fun. But Cabernet Franc, I just have gotten this huge appreciation for well-managed Cabernet Franc. Um, to me, it's one of the varieties that is truly ruined in the vineyard. If you don't do the right viticulture steps, everybody's had a Cab Franc that has some bell pepper or some green characteristics that maybe they uh, had a hard time seeing past. Um, not to say that I don't love a little bit of some spicy characteristic in my Cab Franc, um, but I like to be able to enjoy the rest of the components to the wine. So um, we have Cabernet Franc up at our Winebau Vineyard as well as at Bacchus. Um, it is a block that we take care of first. It is a block that if you are late a week, it will show and your wine quality uh, will leave leave some to, to mm, it'll make you leave something asking for more. Um, so we're going through and this is the block that gets shoot thin first. We're really big on um, setting our crops so that the clusters don't stack on one another or stack on kind of the framework of the vine. Um, again, just so sunlight is able to get to, uh, so sunlight's able to get to all, all sides of the grapes. So we're going through with Cabernet Franc and also leafing early. Um, it's a variety that we bring down to two clusters per shoot very early in the year. Uh, to be sure that those clusters are getting nice exposure to the sun. Um, sunlight exposure is huge in being able to uh, ripen and go from that um, green bell pepper kind of pyrazine flavor that Cabernet Franc can have um, to kind of a, a rich, nice spice, spicy character. Is, um, is sunlight management a matter of uh, like how you 
how you shade the canopy? Is that a matter of, like you said, spacing, I guess, the, the bunches, obviously? And, and to what extent does leaf... Um, or does like uh, like I've heard I've heard a lot of talk about leaf pulling both from a both from a sunlight exposure, but also to kind of keep some of those green notes out with Cap Franc. Is that sort of what you're going after? That's exactly what we're going after. So it is. It's a unique kind of two double-edged sword. So we um, love sunlight exposure, but direct sunlight exposure, kind of like you or me, if you go out in the sun uh, without sunscreen on, you're going to get sunburned. Um, so what we like to have is diffused sunlight. So, um, we take our canopies and kind of do a 45 degree angle V canopy. It's, um, it's not a true sprawl because there are some wires to, um, hold the shoots up, but it's not the, you know, vertical shoot positioning, which a lot of people think of when they think of vineyards, it really, instead of, um, going straight up and down, the vines come up and then have a nice 45 degree angle canopy. And that allows us so that when the sunlight passes overhead, um, the sun is hitting the leaves on that kind of 45 degree, um, you can kind of think of it as an umbrella. So the sunlight will hit the leaves on top of that 45 degree angle, which is your umbrella while still um, having leaves in that under area around the um, bunches free of leaf debris um, to allow that diffused sunlight to hit the grapes. Awesome. Yeah, it makes, I mean, it makes sense. I think, I think canopy management, um, especially with, with sort of those, um, a little bit more well, finicky is maybe not the right word, but varietals like Franck that need a certain degree of care uh, is one of those elements to grape growing that just, uh, you, I mean, I know very little because I don't actually do it, but I think it, it's really one of those things that doesn't get um, discussed enough and that I think people, I think it's easy even for people on my end of the industry to sort of assume, like you said, that like vertical shoot positioning or that like there's, that every every kind of um, block is going to look the same and it really, you know, the the all that canopy management in particular has to really be um, designed around not only the varietal, but probably the specific exposure and things like that, because you're really trying, you know, where you're getting the most intense sun is probably where you want to position the canopy to protect, protect the bunches as they ripen. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And it's even variety specific where Cabernet Sauvignon is like little soldiers. Uh, their shoots will stand up straight at attention. Um, so you don't need wires to hold them up, they will stay rigid and upright, where Merlot will flop all over the place. And if you don't provide some structure, um, the canopy will fall kind of like the bind of a book. If you open a book up, it'll split to where everything um, falls to the side. And then you've got this big exposed area down the middle. Interesting. Um, so we'll, you know, add little catch wires to one variety. And it's a it's an adjustment. Even, um, you know, there's been Merlot that we've been farming at Dionysus since uh, the 80s. And we just added a new wire two years ago. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so we're constantly um, kind of looking at the vines and thinking about ways to improve. And uh, sometimes the way to improve is to stop moving your wires and to be more hands off. We've definitely learned that with Cabernet. Um, yeah. On. Yeah. Sometimes you have to just let the, the the vine do its thing and and sort of stay out of its way. Definitely, 
definitely. So, and then there's even um, the human factor, like going back with Cab Franc a little bit. It's really unique when we're going through and doing our cluster thinning um, with several varieties, but Cab Franc in particular will have these large clusters that are very tightly packed um, and then some looser clusters. And to the human eye, what looks more appeasing is the tighter, bigger cluster, even though that will create less concentrated wines. And so we're really working with our crews and kind of tasting the grapes from the two separate clusters and then talking about why one of them we want to keep because it'll make these dense, you know, big wines and why one, even though it looks better and it's bigger, it weighs more, it actually is not going to give um, the benefits to these looser clusters. We call them kind of to paint the picture. We call them little watermelons because mm. they'll be ripe on the outside, but pink in the middle. Hmm. Um, so they will be purple on the outside, but pink in the middle where the looser clusters will have nice color throughout. And is it generally speaking that um, winemakers now by and large understand sort of the value of a little bit lower yield, a little bit maybe smaller berries um, with the understanding that, that the resulting wine is probably going to be more complex and expressive than something that's, you know, where you're getting a little bit more tonnage per acre, but you're, so you're able to make a little bit more wine, but the quality may be lower. I mean, that, that seems to be where most people understand the, the industry to be going, but obviously that there's, there's, that's probably not universally true. The unique thing with crop load is so many winemakers really learn about the crop loads that they like through their mentors growing up um, in their careers. I kind of have talked with a lot of winemakers and it's either from experience at one location as they were kind of crafting their honing in on their craft. Um, it's really unique. I, I work with a lot of winemakers and I still have such a large range. We have um, two winemakers selling Cabernet Sauvignon for a similar price point and one requests um, two ton per acre, one cluster per shoot in the same block. Uh, the other winemaker requests four tons per acre you know, with two clusters per shoot. Um, which wine do I prefer? I actually prefer the one that's four tons to the acre because I think it um, has a little bit softer tannins and is a little bit more of a balanced wine where um, the two ton per acre Cabernet, I could see where the tannins could help protect it for aging. So it may be the better wine in 20 years, but it's not gonna be even approachable for five years to drink. Hmm. Um, so one last question for you, Lacey. Um, do you have a, a, a favorite block or a favorite varietal that you work with? Is there something that uh, that you just either either the working with the fruit itself or, or the wines that you've had made from it? Is there something that that just that stands out for you in the in the properties? Definitely, there is. Um, well, there's two blocks that I've really honed in on and kind of have a sweet spot for uh, one would be the 1972 planting of Cabernet block three out at Bacchus. Um, that block, just these old gnarly vines produce a consistent crop each year. It has this unique flavor profile where 
I think anybody could set it in front of me and I could identify that block hmm. where many other blocks, you know, that's not the case. Um, it is also a block that has unique um, kind of soil types. So we do pick part of the rows and then uh, the later half of the row, for example, will come through and pick for the same winery client, but four or five days later. And it's just amazing how that, um, the difference in harvest date will make those two wines um, very unique. Um, my other favorite is the Cab Franc up at Winebow, just because Miguel Rodriguez, our production manager there, you could just tell that it's his favorite block. <laughs> and so the amount of passion that he puts into it um, is just amazing. And the winemakers that are in that block, um, they all, I think, see and feel Miguel's passion and it follows it fall, that passion follows into the winery. Awesome. Well, Lacey, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the, uh, the quiet time of winter and, uh, the snow and all that. And, uh, I'm sure spring will be here, uh, sooner than, than we, than any of us expect. Definitely. We'll be ready for it. That's for sure. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you, Zach. Thanks again to Lacey Liebeck for joining me on Disgorged. For more information on Sagemore Vineyards, including the grape data we talked about and a list of wineries who purchased their fruit, visit sagemorevineyards.com. I'm your host, Zach Jabal. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ZJabal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E, or find me at vinetrainings.com, that's Vine with a V. Thanks so much for listening to Disgorged, and cheers. (laughs)